That's right. Welcome in. Welcome back to another summer edition of the Always Irish Notre Dame Football Podcast channel brought to you in part by Michigan Sports and Entertainment Podcast Network. Again, I have to say this, for the summer months, there's a lot to talk about. It's actually been a pleasant surprise. A lot of it's good news for Notre Dame, uh, not bad news. So we have a lot of stuff to go over today, um, and we're going to get into it. So let's let's get the propers out of the way. Uh, obviously, you could find us on YouTube by typing in Always Irish. Twitter, type in Always Irish or at JKZND4. That's how you could find me. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, you can find us in all of those platforms. Uh, like, subscribe, give a review, whatever you want to do. Um, you know, whatever's easiest for you. I don't. I don't care. Uh, and so here, here's where here's where we're going to start. The first things first. And uh, I know this is a couple days late, uh, but I would be remiss if I did not uh, wish a happy Father's Day to all the Notre Dame dads and granddads out there. Uh, if you are like me, I mean, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't have a reason to be a Notre Dame fan probably if it wasn't for my dad and his dad. Um, and, you know, so I'm sure it's the same for a lot of Notre Dame people, you're kind of born into it. And if it's like me, you're just born into a Notre Dame family. And that was just the way it is. <laughs> there was no choice. There was another, no other option. It is what it is. Uh, you're a Notre Dame fan. And, and how that morphed into, it didn't matter if you didn't get into Notre Dame and were in my family and went to another school or it it didn't matter. That wasn't your. That's just where you got an education. That's not your school. Notre Dame was still your school, and so I don't know how you guys grew up, but that's kind of how I grew up. It was like I'm in Illinois, you know, an hour away from U of I, and it's like I grew up thinking, "What is Illinois?" Like I have no interest in even learning what that is, like at all. It was just nothing to me, and so uh, shout out to all the dads and, and granddads. Those were. Those were some of my earliest childhood memories were, you know, it's Notre Dame football Saturday going over to my my father's and my grandfather's house and him pacing up and down the whole length of the house with that cup of black coffee, just pounding it all day before the games back and forth pacing, just nervous, didn't matter who we were playing, nervous, 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 always feared the worst, like maybe that's where I get it from. Those were some of my early memories of uh, my my dad and his brothers and my grandfather. And the game would start and he would start cursing at the TV from his chair, his Notre Dame chair, the same chair that he died in, sitting straight up with a cup of coffee in his hand and his heart gave out. How appropriate is that? The same chair I remember him in my whole childhood where he used to scream and curse at the TV and uh, it's the chair he ended up dying in. How appropriate is that? And I just remember my we were little kids and, and my grandmother leaning over to him and saying, John, the grandkids are here. Don't use those words. You know, so I'm sure if you're a Notre Dame family, you share those kind of experiences. But that was my childhood. Every Saturday, that's what we did. And that's what we loved. And that's how we bonded. Even if the game was bad, at least we were all in it together. And so... Uh, shout out to all the Notre Dame dads and granddads out there. Um, that's how fandom gets passed down from one generation to the next. And um, and uh, I don't know the picture on your screen of my brother, myself, and my dad. I can't tell you. I know it was Lou Holtz years still, early 90s, but I don't remember exactly which game it was. We went... We, we're lucky enough to go to a lot of games back then, and I, I, I don't. I was too young. I just don't remember what games were. But I do know it was back when we they had those the metal bleacher seats in each of the corners of the end zone still, to where if you had those seats, you had to walk on the grass to get to them, and and we got those tickets from some big shot banker that we knew from growing up, and he had those seats, and um, just being able to walk on the field and touch the grass was so special. So that that's what that picture's from. But I, I don't remember exactly what year or who we were playing that day. Um, and so that that's how we are going to start, is um, by congratulating and thanking all of our Notre Dame dads. 
And uh, this isn't really football related at all, but I want to mention it just because I think it's important and it's something I was following and it was on social media last week. Um, the comedian, entertainer, political guy, whatever you, he's calling himself these days, uh, John Stewart was in front of Congress um, pleading with them to, and he's done this multiple years and kept getting rejected, but pleading to get some medical care and funds in, in a bill to support 9-11 first responders who are now feeling the effects from 9-11. Now they're getting certain types of cancers and different problems from what they're breathing in down there at the, the site. And, um, and, and I don't always agree with everything John Stewart says or does politically or whatever, but him standing up for this group in the way he did and over multiple years, I want to congratulate him. I mean, that's something that everybody should be behind regardless of political affiliation or anything else. The least we could do is help those people that were down there trying to save people. Um, now they are really, really getting sick and it's sad to see what, what's happening. So credit to him for being the, the face of this. And in a lot of ways, I think it's sad to say this. Maybe this bill, this bill with these funds passed only because they felt the pressure of having this celebrity up there and the backlash they would get for rejecting it again with such a powerful face and name being the, on the forefront of this. And so that's sad if it's true, but also good for him for getting it done. So even if you don't agree with some of his politics, that was really, really powerful. And look it up on YouTube and Twitter, type in John Stewart Congress 9-11, and you'll see what I mean. He was calling out these people um, for not helping these folks out. And uh, it, it was a pretty powerful thing. And um, so I, I wanted to mention that. I just think it's important. Some things are bigger than sports. So I, I wanted to mention that and um, say tip of the cap to him for standing up for these people that risked their lives on, you know, the worst day in America since what, Pearl Harbor or JFK? I, I, I mean, it, it's so, anyways, I, I wanted to mention that. I thought it was important. That being said, Let's get into some football. And it ended up being a big weekend for Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame recruiting is on a little bit of a roll. They are on a heater. Uh, and it's really, really good to see. And, and so there's multiple things I want to get into in relation to this topic and what's going on. Um, but here's something I want to mention too. And I want to I want to specifically mention it because it's going to tie up some loose ends from things that I mentioned before on this podcast. And I want to give Mike Elston and Jeff Quinn a ton of credit for recruiting their lines. Uh, that that was one of the big questions, and I openly put this question out there on this show before. On this show, I remember openly questioning when they gave Jeff Quinn that job, is this just, you know, buddy buddies with Kelly, same old country club thing. I'm bringing one of my buddies, cronies in there. Uh, how's he going to do on the recruiting trail? How, how is he, you know, how is this all going to work out? And we were nervous about that because we were all used to Harry Heastam and the results he was getting both in recruiting and out of his unit on the field. And I think those concerns were absolutely legitimate concerns of us to raise and for me to raise. And now I'm to the point where I'm going to give the guy credit and I'm going to say he's doing a hell of a job. And and here's here's the thing, too. And and Elston has more of a history. So I was a little more. It, it was easier for me to believe Elston was going to be able to, to do it at a high level just because I had more of a history of of him and experience with him than Quinn. But here's why I think this is so critically important. Uh, the reason is because Notre Dame is never going to win a ton of battles for top end skill positions like, like crazy. They're, they're just not going to, there's not a lot of cycles where Notre Dame's going to get the number one, you know, a bunch of number one receivers out there with burning speed, you know, Justin Ross and uh, the kid from Judy from Alabama and stuff. Notre Dame's not going to get those type of kids. They're just not. Okay. 
at least not enough of them to be able to rely upon that to to have enough of them to win you games, and that's the reason you're winning games. Notre Dame, to make it to the playoff and contend with these top-end teams, it's, to me, it's very dependent and linked to success on both lines. Offensive line, defensive line. Notre Dame's got to be better than most teams in those areas to be able to compete. And, And the other thing with that is, too, the way Notre Dame schedules, we talk about this all the time on this show, the way Notre Dame is nationally scheduled, having to adapt to all these different uh, styles of play throughout the country in different conferences and the way they all have played different offenses, Notre Dame needs, they just need to have ultra elite, better than most talent and efficiency on both those lines to mitigate and be able to sustain some of these week-to-week changes and how some people are playing up, up-tempo, up fast pace, throw the ball all over. Then we go play another team in the Big Ten that just wants to run the ball. Then you're, you, you have to be stable on both lines to be able to endure whatever teams are going to throw at you on both offense and defense. So I think it's critically important. The only way Notre Dame can compete for a playoff spot is to be ultra rock solid on both lines. And I am honestly very impressed with the way Elston and Quinn are recruiting and developing their lines at this point. So ND can't compete without that, and and I give them credit. I mean, we we got I I'm just really impressed. Uh, this is a level of efficiency in in recruiting that I haven't seen for a long time, at least in to this level. Uh, I think there was one Charlie Weiss class, maybe two, that got me really really excited. But it was very top-heavy talent. You know, like, like a Manti Teo and a Michael Floyd type on the top end. But the bottom end, it was more just bodies filling things in. I think we're starting to see a shift with Notre Dame where the floor is being raised because of the caliber kids they're going for. Just that the, the bottom level is being raised, which increases our depth. And, and it just... it. It's like the tide that rises, rises all ships. And so I'm seeing more well-rounded classes with potential upside in both the 20 and 21 cycles right now. The 2020 cycle for Notre Dame, I'm, I'm looking at, say, like the Scout 247 composite rankings. I mean, you could find some, depending on what recruiting source you you prefer, you know, there are some different takes, but take the 247 composite rankings. Right now for the 2020 class, they have Notre Dame at number five. And so at number five, that puts Notre Dame behind Clemson, Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. So if if you're looking at this as a Notre Dame fan and you're looking at those teams ahead of us, uh, it, a lot can change before this cycle ends. But if Notre Dame could end their recruitment for 2020 at number five. Is anybody going to be upset about that? You look at the teams ahead of us, they have every advantage in the world in in recruiting over Notre Dame. Every one of them does. Lesser strict academics, better weather, uh, winning more recently. You know, you look at Clemson and Alabama and Georgia. I, I don't know. That's about as good as you could do. You always hope for more as a Notre Dame fan. But as long as, see, here's the thing you got to watch out for, though. And we've all fallen for this before with Notre Dame. I've seen a bunch of these cycles where Notre Dame's in the top 10. And then right at signing day, boom, they end up dropping 12 to 15 spots because all those hat pickers, you know, the five-star hat pick flippers that day, they all start picking their schools, and then before you know it, Notre Dame starts dropping every hour because more kids are committing that are all five stars. So, But for where we're at right now, I don't know how any Notre Dame fan could say this isn't good enough. It's about as good as you could do because I don't know how you can – I don't know how you could be Notre Dame with the recruiting challenges you have, whether it be weather and climate, whether it be what a – small town, nothing burger, most of South Bend is other than campus. Whether it be, it's hard academically, so we can't cast as big of a net for kids. 
all that stuff. And you're right behind Clemson, Alabama, LSU, and Georgia. That's a pretty good spot to be. You look at the 2021 class, obviously that's just getting ramped up, but currently number two. And so obviously that's going to change a lot. It's very early. But this is very obviously to me an uptick in the entire recruiting operation. I've been talking to you guys about how I've been feeling and showing you evidence that we've been targeting a higher caliber kid. And this is further proof of that. Now, not everyone is the number one kid at their position or whatever, but when you're loading up a class with four-star kids instead of three-star kids, it makes a difference. You can laugh at that and give me examples of a three-star who turns out to be great. Fine. There's all those anecdotal things out there. Fine. All you want. Show me some two, three-star kid who turns out great, and I'll show you 50, four, five-star kids that are in the NFL. Okay, so so I just feel more comfortable seeing this tide rising, and it's raising all the Notre Dame ships. I feel like the the basement is being raised of, of expectations, of quality depth for this team. And so it's really, really good to see. And so in case you missed it because you were doing Father's Day stuff or anything else, they got Michael Carmody, four-star offensive tackle, Blake Fisher, four-star offensive tackle for 2021, and Gabriel Rubio, four-star defensive tackle 2021. Okay, this is filling out your lines with quality, depth, and upside. This is what you need. And so over just the course of this weekend, that's three four-star recruits on the lines. That's exactly what the doctor ordered. I love having these guys aboard. And then here's the other thing. You know, people want to nitpick. I know with Carmody, there were some questions about different recruiting sources, um, some not valuing him as much and had him as a three-star and others had him as a four-star. When there seems to be a disparity in, in some of these rankings and how good a kid is, the next thing I do is kind of look at their offer list um, because it could kind of tell me a lot based on who's offering a kid. And so when I see that a kid is being offered by Notre Dame, Ohio State, Texas A&M, Iowa, Miami, Michigan, Nebraska, Penn State, Stanford, Virginia Tech, Wisconsin, Ole Miss, Northwestern. Those are enough names for me to think this is a good quality kid that we want on our team. And lately, Notre Dame has been doing an excellent job of getting the most out of their offensive linemen and developing pro prospects once they're in the program. I think that's one of the positions now where there's a new level of expectation set and, and see, this is where we need to get with every position on this roster is you have these older guys who are taking the younger guys under their wing and saying, you don't understand. This is Notre Dame offensive line. We have a level you have to be at to uphold because that is the standard of Notre Dame offensive line play now. And that's being passed along. And I love to see it. They're taking ownership and responsibility of their group. And it's great to see. And so when I look at this and I see this quality depth, and I think it was last week or the week before, I went over those numbers of like where the kids were recruiting, where they are in their state and their position ranking of how, how good they are considered to be compared to everybody else in their state and, and nationally. And so when I see that, that we seem to be targeting, like even our middle of the road recruits seem to be uh, at a higher level than they were the last handful of years. Here's why I like that so much, because here's where I think Notre Dame's, this is what I think has been holding Notre Dame back from being able to break through that glass ceiling and beat a team like Clemson or Alabama in 2012 or Ohio State when we played them in the big bowl game a few years ago, okay? And, and, and it's something I've complained about for a long time, and I'm hoping we're seeing the end of it. And that is choppy, what I would call choppy roster construction. Meaning you have these years where the offense is really good, but the defense is bad. Then you have years where the defense is good and the offense is bad. Then you have years where we can run the ball, but can't really throw it. Then you have, you know, and then you have this, it just seems like 
Notre Dame hasn't been able to put it all together at the same time. We've gone through these phases where, like, like 2015 is a great example. Really exciting offense that could run and pass the ball pretty well. Horrible defense that cost us games. Like, like or not horrible, but not good enough. You know? Um, and so, it. but what causes that is roster instability and choppiness, where you maybe whiffed a bunch of positions in a recruiting cycle all at the same time, and then they come home to roost a few years later on your roster, and then it causes a problem, right? Like, you need to build enough depth and have a respectable floor enough that you're good enough in all these areas to be able to compete. And I think we've been close to that. Like, last year was a pretty good example of us being close to it. And so now the concern is, oh, well, we were close, but look at how much top-end talent that defense lost. And that's why this year's such a big telling year to know whether it's a rebuild or a reload. So this choppiness on the roster where you have certain, certain position groups that are good, great, you know, borderline elite or whatever, you need enough of them to be in the green that, that, that you don't have one of these areas that costs you a game or two and knocks you down no matter if the other levels are good or not. And so I'm hoping we're seeing the corner turned to where we're not going to have that choppiness and those gaps in the roster that cost us games and that's that stop us from having the quality depth it takes to overcome an injury or two or to find some guys that are just, you know, we're a lower four-star guy that turned into a, a, an all-star great player. Um, and so that's where we need to get. And these two recruiting classes, especially 20 and 21, they're shaping up to be able to provide that kind of depth that we haven't had in a long time. And I'm excited to see uh, what this iteration of Notre Dame looks like in a few years because it's exciting. And so all of these efforts are to be applauded. I've said this before. I was a very, I was very, very hard on Notre Dame's recruiting operation, even as little as two to three years ago. I felt that they were behind in a lot of basic ways. Uh, compared to other big football operations, just in terms of how they operated the recruiting process and, and office. Um, things like, look at how much money Notre Dame has, and they were they had half the recruiting staff in that, that department as Ohio State. I found that to be totally unacceptable. They've totally fixed that, revamped that, the social media aspect and digital aspect of it. They've modernized in almost every way that I asked for, and that is to be applauded. Keep it going. Okay, moving on. Um, I I want to get into this. It I had a not very pleasant interaction with <laughs> with the Michigan guy on Twitter, and then it, it turned from a public thing into him direct message messaging me private insults and threats and everything else, and. Um, and so, but here's what it stemmed from. And this was a few days ago or over the weekend uh, and late last week. And and here's the, the problem is a lot of these people's arguments against Notre Dame revolve around the conference thing and how dare you not be in a conference and how, just how much we, how much reverence we should have for conferences and division titles and, and how that's the be-all, end-all. And it's the fairest way to do it because it's so straightforward with these divisions and conferences and how important it is to honor those, uh, the teams that win those and those are the ones that should be in the playoff and all this kind of stuff, okay? And so, but the problem with that is, well, there's a couple things. One is, you can't have it both ways. And and one, one thing I do ask of these other fan bases is when they give Notre Dame a hard time about the private TV deal and about the private negotiations they had for BCS consideration and for the playoff, there's a Notre Dame rule in the playoff specifically because they're not in under the conference umbrella. And so when you look at those things, People get mad at Notre Dame because they they think they're better than everybody else for having this private deal and and not having to follow that same protocol as everybody else. Well, one thing is 
this protocol is harder than everybody else. So that's the first thing. If you don't like Notre Dame and you don't want them in the playoff, you should want them to stay independent. Because I'm a firm believer with one loss, Notre Dame is left out. Okay? This isn't the Big Ten where you can lose a horrible game to a nobody in the Big Ten, still play for the Big Ten Conference Championship, and have a good case and a good chance to make the playoff. Notre Dame does not have that luxury. I think with one loss, Notre Dame's out. So that's the first thing I I would say to these people uh, is you're dumb. It's actually harder for Notre Dame to get in being independent. The only reason this is in your mind that is so unfair is because it happened last year. Okay. So that's the first thing they need to realize. It's actually a harder path, not an easier path because Notre Dame cannot afford a loss and then make it up in a conference championship game and get in. Can't happen. One loss, Notre Dame's out. So that's that's the number one argument that makes no sense that I have to break down and tell people. And then the number two problem with this is why are people mad at Notre Dame for accepting these kind of deals that are offered to them? Like any school, if you took the money that NBC pays for the rights for these games and offered it to your school, why would they say no? Like Notre Dame didn't create all this stuff. People offered it to them because it's a mutually beneficial agreement. So if if the playoff people said, Notre Dame, if you're not in the in a conference full-time, you're not considered for the playoff, end of story. That forces Notre Dame's hand. So don't be mad at Notre Dame that those people are willing to play ball with them and make an exception for Notre Dame's status. Be mad at those people then. But you're mad at Notre Dame for turning that down? Why would you? It allows Notre Dame to keep living the way they want to live and be able to make a, a title run. So they can only have these perceived benefits if they're offered to them. And your school should do it too if they were offered this stuff. Especially back before these mega TV conference deals, 700 channels with 800 games, okay? Uh, Especially going back before that. This Notre Dame NBC deal was gold. You'd be dumb not to take it. So don't be mad at Notre Dame about it. Be mad at the people offering it to them. But... Here's the real problem with this. And this is what really heated this Michigan guy up. Because I always attack these arguments with logic. Not emotion, but logic. And the guy was talking about you shouldn't be in a playoff consideration because you're not in one of these conferences. And that's just not fair. And I don't care that you want 12-0. You weren't in this conference. And conference divisions are important. And we have to respect that. And Notre Dame didn't do that, so so they should have never been in. It's a ridiculous favoritism, you know, the whole thing. But here's my response to that, and it's the most logical one I could think of. You, you want to make a big deal about these conference divisions mattering in terms of playoff consideration. Okay, fine. I, I agree they should be a key component. Even as a Notre Dame fan, I agree that should be a major consideration. And you know what it makes me think about? Northwestern winning their comp, their division of the Big Ten. They were the best team in that division. You know who went to Northwestern and beat them at their home field with the playoff on the line? Notre Dame. So boom, automatically, Notre Dame does get conference division credit because they beat the best team in that division. What's that you say? That's not impressive enough? Let's go. Let's jump divisions. They didn't just do it in one. They did it in two. And they went into the ACC. And they beat Pitt, who won their division. So I brought this up to this guy. And I said, I agree with you. Those divisions should mean something. So what does it say that Notre Dame not only did it once, but did it twice and went into these different conferences and beat two different leaders of their divisions who won their divisions? Oh, but those divisions are garbage. That doesn't count, is what the guy says. Which is what I knew he was going to say, which was all my plan. So you see how I, you got to use logic and you got to think a step ahead when you're dealing with a dummy on the internet to know where they're going to go so you can block them off with logic. So he did exactly what I wanted him to do. 
and said, oh, but those divisions don't count. Those are no nothing divisions, you know. And then I said, well, wait a second. You just can't have it both ways. It's either one way or the other way. So if you want to tell me these divisions and who wins them mean so much, and there's so there should be so much rever deferential reverence and respect and credence give to those divisions. If you want that, you don't get to pick and choose which ones. You either want it or you don't. You either value those results or you don't. And if you're telling me that you don't because you don't value the teams in those divisions, then maybe that's just, maybe you don't value it as much as you think overall, as much as you say. Maybe it isn't that important to you. That's just the narrative you use when it fits your argument. So you can't have it both ways. And tell me, John, it's all this divi divisions and, and those are the only people that should be considered and all this stuff. And then right when I bring up the Notre Dame beat two division winners, they suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. It's got to be one way or the other. You don't get to pick. And so don't let these people try and use these one-way narratives. Like, like you, you got to... Just logically, it makes no sense. You either really, really value that, like you said you did, in which case, I don't understand, why does Notre Dame have to be in the that division or conference full-time? It's actually more impressive than Notre Dame did because they could win in different divisions, I mean, different conferences, Big Ten and ACC. So, to me, that ends every argument, and there's no good comeback people will have for that. So they want their cake, and they want to eat it, too. Value these divisions and, and the results from those divisions mean everything for playoff consideration, except if it's certain ones that don't fit their narrative, like when Notre Dame wins two divisions in college football, which is basically what they did, in my opinion. So so these illogical, uh, you just can't have your cake and eat it, too. It's one or the other. Either respect the divisions like you're telling me to or tell me they're not that big a deal because some of them are bad. And then you know what I'm going to say next? The conference championship, if you're going to go that path then, here's see, here's where I go next. If you're going to tell me that some of these divisions shouldn't matter because they're not good enough, the next thing I'm going to tell you is when it comes to conference championship week, you need to get rid of the divisions then and just have the two best teams play each other. I don't give a shit if they played each other the week before or if they're in the same Division in a conference. Make them play again then. So that's my answer to that. Either you do respect them individually as these divisions in a conference, which means you by default have to respect Notre Dame for winning two of them, or you don't respect them. And then I would suggest let's make it really harder for your conference championships and have the two best teams in a conference play. Not just the winners of each division. And I'm pretty sure the Big 12 does that. Doesn't the Big 12 do that? Where I'm pretty sure they do. Where it's there's not two different divisions. It's round robin. And then the two best teams play. And if they play two weeks in a row, so be it. Let them beat the hell out of each other. So, so if you're ever in an argument with somebody about this topic, use these points. Because I don't see any way they could get around them. I really don't. Now, I've had this next topic written down in my notes as a bullet point for like a year and I'm meaning to ask this question like I'm one of those people who pays attention to like Twitter will have a thing where like a Notre Dame beat writer will write you know submit your uh, tweet me your questions you want answered about the team or this and that and I see that on podcasts and uh, art writers and on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else and it's very interesting to look at some of the questions Notre Dame fans are. Some of them have, I think Eric Hansen of the South Bend Tribune has like a transcript of all the questions asked and stuff over the over the each episode. And this is something I see asked every single time this happens. And I don't understand Notre Dame's fans obsession with this topic. Not one of these Submit your question to get answered for the podcasts, okay? Not one of these does not include the question from some Notre Dame fan. Some variation of the following. I'm super concerned about how Notre Dame's going to get to the 85-man limit. How are we going to do this? That 
question is asked every single time one of these things comes up. And I don't understand Notre Dame fans' obsession with getting to the 85 number for a couple reasons. Reason number one, it all ends up working out fine anyways because you always end up with a couple transfers, a couple medical hardships, and then you're down to 85. It always seems to work out fine that way on its own just by natural progression of how things go. Okay, that's number one. Here's number two. Let's say that didn't happen and you really were a few spots over the 85 limit. Oh my God, how are we going to trim it down to get to 85? What the hell do you care? It's not like they're going to drop Ian Book off the team to make room. So what do you, Joe Blow, Notre Dame fan on your couch, what do you really care? Like you act like they're going to take a player who is a key member of the team and, and drop them off the team to make room. That's not how it's going to go. So I don't understand this obsession about the 85 number for Notre Dame fans. What am I missing? We always end up getting there just naturally anyways. And I, I'm sorry. Like, is everybody just, I don't get it. I really don't get it. It's not like the, to make room for the 85th guy, they're going to drop a starter. Like, it's not like, hey, Khalid Kareem, we need to make room for one more guy at the bottom of the roster. You're out of here. So what do you so what do you care if a four-string kid you don't know is out and another one's in for the 85th spot? It's not going to be anybody you've probably even seen play before. So what do you really care? But I see it all the time. And I don't see other fan bases asking it. So I don't get what the big deal is with it. I really don't. So I've always wanted to ask that. So tell me what I'm missing. But Notre Dame fans seem obsessed with that 85 problem. And I, I've never seen it be a problem. So I don't get it. Here's another bullet point. I was thinking about, I should have lumped this into the Michigan part that I was just discussing that conference argument. But in a lot of ways, I see Notre Dame and Michigan having similar outlooks for this upcoming year, uh, and, and I find that to be interesting. But what I see is offenses that are expected to take a step forward with quarterbacks another year as a starter. Each of them would be going into their second year as starters, or Book wasn't even the starter starting last year, but you know what I mean. And also both with the possibility of maybe taking a little step back on defense. I don't expect either defense to be terrible. I'm just not quite sure they're going to be elite or very, very good like both were last year. They just both lost a ton of talent to the NFL. It's actually a compliment that they had that much talent that they're, they might take a step back. But I just think it's very interesting to what Let's see, because I see a lot of parallels there. And so I really want to see if this goes how I think it'll go, which is with both of those offenses appearing to be more electric and more dynamic, and also maybe a little step back from both of the defenses just because of the attrition of losing so much talent to the NFL. And so I, I just personally find that an, an interesting thing to look at as the year progresses and gets going to see how both of those teams develop. Something else I thought was interesting, and you'll see a lot of this stuff in the summer, uh, but I just thought this was interesting to take a look at. Um, recently, CBS released their list of top college football coaches for 2019. And I, I see some, I mean, obviously, this is like some fact, some opinion piece here. I mean, obviously, Saban, number one, Dabo, number two, Urban would have been somewhere in that mix. Um you know, had he not retired, obviously, but I think it's pretty obvious to me those two are head of the class, head and shoulders above everybody else. Can we all agree on that? Like, I just think those two have proven themselves to be far and away the two best coaches in America right now. But there are some general trends I want to bring up from this list that I see that I think are really intriguing. And so what they came up with is one Saban, two Dabo, three Peterson, four Riley, five Jimbo, six Kirby, seven BK, 
And um, Sporting News had one of these out too, and some of them were a little different, but they also had Brian Kelly number seven, uh, Patterson eight, Shaw nine, Mullen 10, Franklin 11, Gundy 12, D'Antonio 13, Chip Kelly 14, Harbaugh 15, Fitz 16, Herman 17, Whittingham 18, Campbell 19, Leach 20, Cutcliffe 21, Ferenc 22, Chris 23, Malzahn 24, Frost 25. Okay, so here's some of my thoughts about this list. I At the top, it's Saban and Dabo, and then there's a huge drop-off. Just up to me, just in results and proven there's a huge drop-off. So those those two are far and away the, the best. You have two ultra-elite, big-time, proven winners. And then I think you have some guys who do a really good job with limited rosters and resources. Guys like Peterson. Okay, guys like Patterson, Peterson, Shaw, D'Antonio, you know, in the top 10, 12... I think those are guys who I always talk about those guys. They get the most out of the rosters they have because they're just not going to have top end talent. And so it's hard for them to win a championship. But I think those are guys that usually maximize the rosters they do have. The sum is better than the total of the parts. And so I've always kind of thought those guys were good at doing that. I've mentioned Peterson before for that. Patterson before. I can't stand how smug Shaw is, but I respect him for doing a good job with smart kids at Stanford. D'Antonio is another one of those guys. And so I don't really have a problem with that. I just think they have a ceiling they're not going to get above because they're just not going to get enough top-end talent to be better than where they're at, at least not at those schools. Now, maybe that's all a part of this too. I thought of that, saying that some of these guys are doing about as good as they can for where they're at, and so it's hard to hold that against them. But the other part is maybe if people thought more of you, you would get one of these highly, more highly sought-after jobs with more resources so you could recruit better. Do you get what I'm saying? So maybe that's like a part of this is selling yourself enough that you get those bigger jobs that give you better resources to field a better team. So maybe that's a part of it or maybe it isn't. And some of these guys are happy staying where they're at at that level. I mean, is there anything I really have a problem with, like in the top 10 or 15? I mean, I Riley's done a great job, but I, it's hard for me to buy into like the gimmick thing they have going there. It's, it feels like it's half a team to me, the way they play defense in that conference. And But you can't deny the results, and he keeps getting Heisman-level quarterbacks in there. So you got to give him credit for that. But it's I don't look at them on the same scale as Alabama and Clemson or, or even Ohio State in a lot of ways because I don't see a full team. I see Nintendo offense. I'll tell you probably the only one in the top 10 I, I do have a problem with, and it's Jimbo Fisher at number five. I think Jimbo Fisher is one of those guys who's at jobs where you could recruit when you're unconscious because of where you are in the country. And you're going to get all this talent because it's all local. You could do a lot of it local, Florida State, Texas A&M, okay? And, but I don't think he's that great of a coach. I don't think he's that great of a motivator, an X's and O's guy. I just think he he's in these talent-rich areas, and he rode that out. But I actually don't think Jimbo is that good of an actual hands-in-the-mud coach. I just don't. I, I never have, and I just don't. I think he did whatever he had to do to get that little run at Florida State through. And then he pieced out. Uh, I just think he was able to take advantage of fertile recruiting land and let the town do what the town does. I honestly think that. So he's one at five where, I mean, I just don't, I just don't value his actual on-field in-game coaching that much. So, so, but I can see here you have some young up-and-comers like, like Lincoln Riley and Herman and Campbell. And I think Campbell's going to be really, really good. I would, I hope Notre Dame looks into him whenever Brian Kelly decides to hang it up. Uh, he's up-and-coming, so I definitely understand that. And then you just have like this group of good but not elite 
guys that haven't gotten over the hump yet, like Brian Kelly, Kirby Smart, Shaw, D'Antonio, Fitz. We went over Patterson, Peterson, Franklin, Gundy. Like, you know, they're they're good, but they're not. They haven't done enough to be a leader. Great, in my opinion, that whole group. I do think Harbot 15 is hilarious. It's one of the only places I've seen that puts him not, you know, being in the ultra elite. I, I just, listen, here's the deal with Harbaugh. You want to tell me he's averaging 10 and 2 or whatever, you know, since coming there. That's fine. But I'm telling you this. Michigan did not bring Jim Harbaugh in to go 9 and 3 or 10 and 2 and lose the two biggest games on the schedule every single year. Whether it be a combination of Notre Dame, Michigan State, Michigan State, Notre Dame, Michigan State, yeah, Michigan State, and Ohio State. Okay, they didn't bring you there for that. When you're Michigan, you already have a roster that should be able to roll a ball out and beat pretty much nine opponents on your Big Ten Big Ten schedule, or eight. So they didn't bring him here to win all the games you should win anyways, just based on talent, and then lose all the all the meaning ones to your big rivals. So. The Harbaugh thing's hilarious to me. He was the savior, and now they don't trust him, so they're bringing in an offensive guy to be the savior for the savior. I find it hilariously embarrassing. I don't understand the hype they're getting, and I hope they lose four games this year and everybody loses their mind. I really do. Um, So seeing him at 15 for the money they're paying him is hilarious, and I can't get enough of it. So I don't know what to think, but that's kind of an interesting list and it's an interesting perspective. I just think there's two guys that are head and shoulders above and then a bunch and a big clump after that. And it would have been three guys above all if Urban was still around. So that that's just how I see it. Those two and then a huge, huge, huge drop off. I'm talking about looking on Twitter and seeing some of this stuff. And I know some of the gambling lines came out for the, the games next year and next fall and I follow a Twitter account, uh, Saturday Down South, and they cover a lot of Southern football and have a lot of information. And they were looking at that 9.5 number for uh, Georgia over Notre Dame in early September. And they wrote an article about it saying they're going to more than cover the 9.5. They are expecting a blowout Georgia over Notre Dame. They are saying Notre Dame is going to get exposed on both of the lines. Uh, exact quote that Georgia will exploit both lines of Notre Dame. They expect they said the words blowout and several touchdown win. Um, in the comments underneath that on on this article were even more hilarious. I mean, people are calling for like a forty point blowout, and they really mean it. I don't think they're just saying it. I think they really mean it, and so. I just, I'm not going to pick Notre Dame to win the game because they haven't proven to me they can win a game of that magnitude yet. And until they do, I'm not picking them. And I think that's perfectly fair. But I am a little surprised that people are calling for like a 35, 40 point blowout. And we're not just talking about like Twitter trolls. We're talking about writers. And, And so I just think that's a little bit surprising to me. I Again, I'm not picking Notre Dame to win the game, but I'm not picking them to get blown out either. Jeez. And I got asked that when I kind of push back on that. I get asked, oh, you think Notre Dame is going to win? And it's like, well, no, I didn't say that either. But there's a big gap between saying we're going to pull the upset on the road at night versus a great team with a ton of athletes. That's different than saying we're going to lose by 40. Isn't there anything in between? Why is it got to be one or the other? You know, so this, so then I tell these people, no, I'm not picking Notre Dame. I, I, I'm i not going to pick them. They haven't proven that they earned that kind of confidence from me yet. Uh, they certainly haven't done that. And then I take crap from the Notre Dame fans then for saying, you know, for saying, oh, what kind of fan are you that you're not picking Notre Dame? You know, you're not a real Notre Dame fan. What do you mean you're not picking Notre Dame? Well, I don't understand what the... I don't understand. Because I love Notre Dame and that's my team, 
I have to pick them to win every game? Why? Why? That 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 is not a, when you look at like definition of being a fan of a team. Nowhere in there do I see must say your team's going to win every single game and have that confidence to be a fan or be a good fan or a loyal fan. That seems stupid to me. That seems immature to me. That seems short-sighted to me. That seems lazy to me. I, I don't, I've just, I can't understand that philosophy that people are saying, you're a hater. You're not a real Notre Dame fan. You're a hater because you're not picking them to win against Georgia. How does that make any sense? Because I actually look at Notre Dame in my heart and then before I speak, I also run my thoughts through my head. Like, you're not a good fan of a team just because you're rah-rah and think they're going to win every game. That makes you a lemming who doesn't think for yourself. So I, I don't understand that idea that if you're a fan of a team, you have to say they're going to win every game. You can hope they win every game, but that doesn't mean I'm going to pick them to win every game just because I... And it was, well, you run a Notre Dame podcast, you're, you're, you're picking against them? Yeah, because I'm using the facts in front of me and logic. What does that have to do with being a Notre Dame fan? Like, you can't separate the two? So I don't understand that, but a lot of people think that. If you're a big fan of a team, apparently you have to pick them to win every game. That's a good way to look like an idiot, by the way, is to, so you might run into, you know, you might run into some team way better than you and, and you don't really in your heart think they're going to win, but you're going to say they're going to win because that's your team. That just seems stupid. That just seems really, really stupid. And I don't understand that idea at all. So, uh, yes, I was surprised to see that everybody's picking this 35, 40 point blowout. Uh, and yes, I was also surprised to be called an ND hater because I'm not picking them to win the game outright. I just don't understand. I don't live that way. I, I, I just don't understand why you would have to, why, why you would have to be a fan of a team and say they're going to win every week. Makes no sense to me. That's not what being a fan is to me. You can hope they win every week, but that doesn't mean you blindly pick them to. That's just lazy. You're just a lazy person if you say that. Okay. We've gone about an hour, and you know what it's time for. It is time for another edition of Always Annoyed. This one is very, very simple. It happens all the time. You know where I see this the most? couple different places. One is, God forbid you're driving in downtown Chicago. God have mercy on your soul. When I lived in the downtown area, I took the L everywhere because I did not have the patience to drive in Chicago traffic. So I just hopped on the train um, and it took me right downtown to the loop and then right back to my neighborhood where I lived. No big deal. Didn't matter if it snowed eight inches, rained, nothing. Okay, I'm taking the L. But you see this problem a lot if you drive in the city, but even out in the suburbs, you see this. I see it most like at Kroger, at Jewel, at the grocery store, in like a shopping center type scenario. And it's been driving me nuts and it's happened to me a few times in the last week and I'm done doing this. I am done doing it. Here's what it is. You're driving and you're going to park somewhere, right? And and you see somebody like coming out of the store and they're, it's to the point where like, you either need to gun it to get in front of where they're walking across from the exit of the store to where their car is and there's the drive. I either need to speed up real quick to get in front of them or slow down and let them go uh, in front of me. Multiple times, I have slowed down, tried to be nice, stopped, open my window and wave them across and they look right at me. One, they do not acknowledge that I'm letting them go and doing them a favor, not with a, a head nod, not with a polite wave, not saying, you know, uh, in your mouth, you know, kind of saying the words, thank you, nothing. Okay, so no acknowledgement of my goodwill whatsoever. 
And then that's not even the worst part. The worst part is when you know you're being an inconvenience to someone and they're stopping their vehicle to let you walk across in front of them, do you think it would kill you to speed your ass up a little bit? I feel like these people slow down when they see me doing this. Like, I've been in this position. Now, I'm not talking about a 95-year-old. I'm not talking about somebody with a cast on their leg. I'm not talking about some handicapped person. I'm talking about normal, regular people. And I've been in this situation where I'm the one walking and somebody waves me across. I think to myself, man, that's nice of them in the vehicle that could run me over to let me walk across the drive part. I'm going to speed up a little bit. I might do a little skip across. I'm going to at least speed my pace up and give them a little nod and say, thank you for letting me cross. You know why? Because it's just the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to do. But multiple times in the last couple weeks, I try and be the nice guy. I get no acknowledgement, even though they're looking right at me to see if I was going to go or let them go. I know they saw me, wave them, no acknowledgement of thank you, totally rude, and then they walk slower than shit right across, and it makes my blood boil. So you know what? I'm done being nice, because if people aren't going to acknowledge it and appreciate it, then why bother? So I'm done with that nicety, because it isn't being appreciated. Am I the only one with this problem? And you know what else? The same thing. This bleeds into letting somebody in, migrate into your lane when you're driving or they're trying to merge over and you let them and they don't even acknowledge you. They're already a pain in the ass and an inconvenience to you because they're in the wrong lane they're, or they, you know, they sped in front of the uh, construction zone and then merge in front of you at the end. You let them in, nothing. No acknowledgement? Seriously? We can't run a society like this. It makes my blood boil. You don't even want to know what I say to myself when somebody does that. Never in my wildest dreams could I imagine being an inconvenience to somebody else. They let me in like that and I don't wave or nod or give some acknowledgement that I appreciate their gesture. So this kind of stuff drives me crazy. It's just little things like this, that make me blow my stack. I'm sitting there for a minute and a half for you to wander across the Kroger parking lot? Seriously? You know you're inconveniencing me. I'm doing you a favor, and you can't speed up a little bit? Come on! We have to be better at this kind of little stuff. And so, you know what? Screw it. I'm done doing this kind of stuff for people. And, and that's going to mean that there's probably some nice people that are going to get where they're going a little slower because I'm not letting them in anymore. Okay? Because it's not being appreciated. So I don't know if these are people who they just weren't raised to be appreciative of little things people do that are nice or they don't know how to or they just don't care. But I just think it's totally in, inconsiderate. I, I really do. Uh, I don't like being an inconvenience to people in my life. And and so the idea that I would make a vehicle stop that could easily run me over and I'm going to see them there, not thank them for this, and then walk just as slow or slower across while they wait, I would never do that in a million years to anybody. I would never, ever do that. Either one of those things, I would never do it because it's just not right. It's not right. So you know what? Forget that. So I apologize to you. Next time, I'll probably clip your ass when you're leaving the store because I'm not stopping. Okay, that, that's going to be it. I'm sorry. I went off on that, but it's always annoyed for a reason. And when you try and do something nice and it's not appreciated, that's annoying. So I'm done with it. Forget it. All right. That's going to be it for this week. I have a bunch more bullet points we didn't get to, so that'll bleed into next week's show. Uh, and we'll talk to you on Twitter. See you next week.